Wait, don't fast forward. I really want to keep the momentum going with our contributors. We have a show here about storytelling and history, and I really do think you, the listener, can become a part of our team. This isn't some ploy, but instead a chance for me to get your opinion and take on the stories that I tell. You just got to go to jenkspod.com slash contributors. I'll also be sending free t-shirts soon. This podcast is produced by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, Brian Gewertz, Seven Bucks Productions, and Cadence 13. What Really Happened is written and hosted by yours truly, the world's most flexible documentary filmmaker. Please let me know what you think on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Andrew Jenks. George Orwell once said, In a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. A curious little girl, about six or seven years old, is running around in a peaceful and big backyard. It's a forest, really, and it's beautiful. As some would say, it's not literally an island, but it has that blissful feel, at least in the eyes of this little girl. There's the green lawns and vegetable gardens, the canals and streams cascading gently down the hills, a nearby lake full of colorful aquatic plants. Now, this little girl wasn't running around in the way a future Olympian does, not so much because, as this little girl would later say, she was, quote, a little movement idiot. When she was five years old, she found the courage to try walking down the hills in her backyard, but would inevitably fall and thus tumble down. She said, and this is important to remember, what a normal person knows automatically, I had to first figure out mentally followed by exhausting exercise. But she would try nonetheless, and her curiosity always had her observing. Her forest as a backyard was run by the Protestant church, where her dad was a pastor. Horst Kasner, the girl's father, went to set up an educational program, a college of sorts, for the church. Pastor Kasner was the lead teacher. In fact, he was in charge of the entire establishment. When at school, this curious girl wasn't the most popular. Said one former classmate, her haircut was impossible. It looked like a pot over her head. Another schoolmate, a man who'd later end up working for this curious little girl, said she was a member of the club of the unkissed. Another person said she knew how to handle all of this. Quote, she decided, okay, you don't fuck me? I'll fuck you with my weapons. And those weapons were intelligence and will and power. Yikes. When visiting her childhood home, which again was part of the Protestant church, I started to wonder when looking at pictures, why was there 30 buildings, mainly brick buildings from the 19th century? I learned that this was a large complex where several hundred mentally and physically disabled people also lived. Rather than keeping them in a psychiatric institution, they learned different trades and grew crops in the gardens. Rather than treating them as less than equal, this little girl discovered those you count out can be quite capable. But this curious little girl was living in a bubble, to put it nicely. If it wasn't so sad, so dire, and such a stain on mankind's existence, I'd say it was like the Truman Show, but it's far worse. When she first went to grade school is when she discovered something unbelievable. Along with nearly 20 million other people from her area, she was being held captive. She was literally being held back 
by the walls of a fortress and the control of the Soviet Union. She could try to escape, but attempts at this usually meant you'd end up in prison or shot to death. She wouldn't know what freedom really felt like until the Berlin Wall fell when she was 35 years old. This curious little girl is Angela Merkel, and she's been Chancellor of Germany for nearly 20 years. She has been considered at various times the leader of the free world, the most powerful woman in the world, and has now been in office since 2005. What are the stakes? Among other items, she oversees Germany's economy, the largest national economy in Europe, and by most metrics, the fourth or fifth largest in the world. She is known as a mystery, and the media and the public have become fascinated by her every move. Merkel is known for what has been called the Merkel Diamond, or the Triangle of Power. This isn't some international treaty, but instead, how Merkel kind of holds her hands during a conversation or meeting. When listening to someone else speak, or even speaking ourselves or if we're at a meeting, some of us may clasp our hands together, rest our hands on our knees, fold our arms, but Merkel does something specific. She keeps both hands in front of her stomach and has the fingertips of both hands touching. This creates a quadrangular shape, almost as if she were to put her hands up, you could try to throw a little ball in between. This is her default hand position. It's been described as probably one of the most recognizable hand gestures in the world. Although I don't think most in the U.S. would know of this. I've never heard of it. To me, it almost looks like a secret hand signal, but Merkel has pointed out it's just something she started doing a long time ago, saying there was always the question, what to do with your arms, and that's how it came about. Meanwhile, in the United States, the current president is also known for his hands. We will not be talking about the debates over his hand size and his own obsession with his hands, but for this story, I must quickly say, as you likely know, there are endless conversations over the president's handshakes. There was an article specifically from the New York Times. The article's headline read, All the President's Handshakes. A few examples. While in the Oval Office, the president shook hands with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who I've actually met, nice guy. The handshake goes on for a while. Trump really squeezes the prime minister's hand tightly. And when the shake is finally over, the prime minister looks exhausted. His eyes tell us that was strange, and he lets out a visible sigh. Then there's handshakes with Canada's prime minister, Justin Trudeau. Trudeau, a well-fit man, comes prepared. He usually counters the president by tugging just as hard. Then another time, the president walked with British Prime Minister Theresa May at the White House. While they walked outside, he held her hand and occasionally would pat it. Last, for my purposes on this front, there was what the Times called Three's Company in Paris, what I call a handshake orgy. The president of France, his wife, and Trump all shaking hands at once in some weird triangle. The first lady also stands there, but her hands are left out. She watches. During another trip President Macron took to the White House, he and Trump held hands all the time, including one shake that lasted 18 seconds. There's also the famous grip-and-pull handshake, which I'm pretty sure he learned from Giuliani. He does this with nearly everyone, like when he shook hands with dictator Kim Jong-un. And then it happened. 
Despite the handshake nicknames, such as the alpha male, the fingertip grip, the pull and pat in action, which he pulled on Gorsuch, there was a new one revealed when President Trump met Chancellor Merkel for the first time. What kind of handshake was this? There wasn't one. When they first met and it was time to shake hands, the president seemingly refused. The press then asked, shake hands, shake hands. It's the Oval Office meeting in which the press are let in to essentially do nothing else but take the photo of a handshake. But why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he shake her hand? Most think it was one of two things. Door number one, the non-handshake was much ado about nothing. Trump just forgot and didn't hear the request for a handshake, and that was actually what the White House sort of kind of said also. The New York Times spoke with a body language expert who said, Merkel has turned toward Trump and is ready to shake hands to show partnership. Trump is imploded in his posture. It seems perception-wise that he is out of it. He can be perceived as disinterested. Therefore, he misses the cue for the handshake. We cannot be definitive that this is a snub or that it is on purpose. But is that true? Or did he not shake her hand for a reason? This leads us to door number two. Trump has an obsession with Merkel and Germany. And why he didn't shake her hand was because of this obsession. Is this true? At first, a simple question of mine about a non-handshake, which I never thought would be an episode, has turned into something I did not expect. I thought looking any more into this was silly. I mean, handshakes. We're talking about handshakes. I also thought about the current president and how so many of us are just tired of talking about him. But our story today is happening because I kept learning of all the nuances at play. I realized this non-handshake has as much to do with the current president as it does with president's past and what some may call their obsession. President Obama's last meeting with Merkel was also his longest meeting in office with any head of state. It was for three hours with the chancellor after he reportedly asked her to stay in office. President George W. Bush repeatedly called Merkel a friend and infamously attempted to massage her shoulders once. Photos online show President Bill Clinton holding an umbrella and laughing with Merkel. So what, right? Those fellows got along better with people. Makes sense. But then, it was after the passing of President George H.W. Bush when I finally knew I had to figure this all out. Because Merkel wasn't in power when the senior Bush was president, but sure enough, there she was at the funeral. Other world leaders were in attendance, but not many world leaders who are currently in power. Why Merkel? I decided to keep track of what she said around the time of the senior Bush's passing. I even set a Google alert for her name and his. I was all in. The more I read, the more I kept finding myself surprised, like really surprised, at how American presidents have found themselves entranced with the German leader. Each president obviously has a deeper voice, is taller, broader shoulders, but remember what that school kid said about Chancellor Merkel. I will fuck you with my weapons, and those weapons were intelligence and will and power. They say politics is about relationships. Why wouldn't the current president shake hands with Merkel? You may be thinking doesn't even matter. I didn't think so, at least at first. But then I realized what really happened. 
It's November 2007. The international press are trying to get a good photo. President George W. Bush is about to get into a big Ford truck. Secret Service is riding behind in the truck bed. And riding shotgun, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. The leaders of the two countries just finished a press conference. Sort of. The setting isn't a large hall or government conference room, but instead, President Bush's ranch in Texas. Reports are that Merkel likes the digs. Although very different, maybe she was reminded of that forest back from childhood. Bush is dressed like he's right at home, which he is. Boots, jeans, short sleeve buttoned down. And then there's Merkel, who's 5'5 and sports a short haircut. She doesn't have the cowboy look, but instead a brown pantsuit. Before the president takes off, yeah, you better believe W is driving himself, a quick camera person slips on a long lens and zooms in. The president seems to kindly joke with Merkel, tapping her on the back. Now, there's a certain way to get in a pickup truck. For somebody who really likes a good pickup truck, you take a step onto that side rail and then smoothly glide into the seat. It takes some confidence to do this. And Merkel, although wearing a pantsuit, has no problems following along. While W puts on his aviators, Merkel casually hops into the Ford pickup just fine. The days of her stumbling around the hills seem over. She could always hang with intellectual heavyweights, but now it also seems like she can just hang. I tried taking a step back to get to know Merkel a bit more, and not just her relationship with U.S. presidents. And that proved to be difficult. Maybe this headline put it best, The Mystery of Angela Merkel. During my research, one characteristic from friends and foes alike kept coming up, and that was her humility. In fact, the greatest dig Merkel will throw at someone is if she says that person needs a little more humility. Said her authorized biographer, Stefan Cornelius, no one can imagine her being photographed in a victorious pose. What I also started to notice, and has almost kind of freaked me out, was that she has some kind of Nostradamus in her. Because in some of her speeches going back some 15 years ago, she began warning the world of something bad taking place. There was a problem in clear daylight, and she said everyone had to wake up. The following story was approved by the person I'm talking about. I had a date, a second date actually, well, what I thought was a second date, with this genius and beautiful woman. She was perfect. I like nerds like Angela Merkel, who are humble but are also confident. They got a little swagger to them. They know they're smart. They know they got a lot going on. And Anyway, we talked for hours, walked around the city, and landed back at my place. And I thought, homeboy's got a chance. Then she said she was tired, and I realized, you know, she had flown in from out of town, and she asked if it'd be weird before she went back to her hotel to take a nap. Huh, a nap. That was an interesting play, I thought, but whatever, I'm desperate. Luckily, because one of our sponsors is Parachute, I have these luxurious sheets at home. So when she got in the bed, she was like, what are these sheets? And it almost felt like I was in the middle of a commercial. I said, well, they're actually premium sheets made from artisans around the world, high-end material, minimalist style, which I happen to like. And I went on and she was cozy. It was great. 
So at this point, I couldn't tell if she wanted to get to know me more or more about parachute sheets. She then looked at me and said, you know, Andrew? And I said, yeah. And she said, I think Melissa is really going to like you. And I said, who's Melissa? And she said, my girlfriend. Oh, you have a girlfriend, I said? That hadn't come up. She shrugged and dug deeper into the sheets. My heart sank. I felt like an idiot. Well, I am an idiot. And so I did the only thing a nice guy does. I gave her the promo code to getting incredible sheets for her and her girlfriend. Visit parachutehome.com slash WRH for free shipping and returns on Parachute's premium quality ultra soft bedding and bath linens. They offer a 60-day trial. So if you don't love your new stuff, just send it back. That's a 60-day trial. You don't love it, just send it back. So once again, that's parachute.com slash WRH, as in what really happened, for free shipping and returns on their premium quality, ultra soft, they are soft, it is quite brilliant, bedding and bath linens. And finally, the two of us remain friends and gladly wanted to share this story. Now, Merkel's understated ways, or humility, shouldn't come as a total shock. I spoke with Dr. Jonathan Olson, department chair and professor of government at Texas Women's University and author of four books. He's also written numerous scholarly articles on Germany and its history. He provided some context. It's the post-war history of Germany. They are not looking for charismatic, exciting speakers because they had some, some bad history. So I think you find all post-war German leaders have been um, not the most dynamic. Now, I would say Merkel is definitely on you know, the, the farther end of that spectrum. This humility, as we'll see, extends far beyond just words. But don't let humility be confused for lack of confidence. I continued to go through interviews and press conferences she had with different presidents. Towards the end of another Q&A with reporters, this time at the G8 summit, Bush and Merkel wait as Bush's closing comments are translated in German. And just as the two are about to walk off, President Bush, with a grin on his face, jokes, Is that what I said? (laughs) What he probably didn't expect? An answer from Merkel. Almost 100%. Almost 100%. Thank you all. If you didn't hear that, Merkel says, in perfectly good English, might I add, that she thinks the translator was almost 100%. I can almost believe that Chancellor Merkel wasn't kidding. In fact, you can hear it in her voice. She may know English better than the translator. Who are we kidding? And above language, don't forget, Merkel loves math. She is, after all, and I say this in the nicest way possible, a full-on geek. So when she says almost 100%, it could mean the translator got a call later that night. Uh, we have the chancellor on the line. You got a few words wrong earlier. Merkel likely got her gift for language from her mother. And what happened to her mother is more of the ugly reality, more of the reality, of what life on those idyllic church grounds in East Germany was really like. Angela's mom, Herland Kasner, was an English teacher. Herland also knew Latin. But because they lived under Soviet control, she wasn't allowed to be a teacher while also married to a pastor. She tried, time and time again, to 
get the government's permission to let her teach, but it was always denied. President George W. Bush reportedly became entranced with Merkel's upbringing. How could you not? The idea of a girl growing up in East Germany whose mom wasn't even allowed to teach in school. Merkel couldn't attain her own freedom until she was 35, only to go on and hold one of the most important jobs in the world. It's been described as a fairy tale, a Cinderella story, just something you couldn't make up. And freedom is something Merkel talks about a lot. In 2009, Merkel gave a speech to Congress. It's hard to find on C-SPAN.com. I've certainly tried, but it's broken up into two parts on YouTube if you want to watch. Ladies and gentlemen, 20 years have gone by since we were given this incredible gift of freedom. But still, nothing keeps me more in thrall. Nothing spurs me on as much. Nothing fills me with stronger, positive feelings than the force of freedom. During her first speech as chancellor, Merkel said, let us dare to want more freedom. While she remained entrapped in East Germany, Merkel stayed busy. She got a doctorate in quantum chemistry in 1986 and worked as a physicist until 1989. It's true that she wasn't on the front lines or anywhere near the front lines fighting for freedom. She wasn't openly revolting. It's also important to realize it's not like it was a closed society and you just couldn't leave the country. East Germany at the time had a state security service known as Stasi. They're considered by many historians as one of the most efficient and tyrannical intelligence and secret police agencies ever to have existed. It was just after the Berlin Wall fell, again when she was 35 years old, did Merkel decide to change careers. As she explained to Congress in 2009, I left my work as a physicist in the Academy of Science in East Berlin behind me and went into politics. Because I was finally able to do something, to make a difference, because I had gained the impression now things can be changed, now you can do something. When you spend 35 years without freedom, you can see how freedom is something very tangible for Chancellor Merkel. It's not an idea. It's something she's lived without. And if there's one thing President George W. Bush talked a lot about during his tenure in office, it was freedom. This fight for freedom quite literally bonded the two. As the AP reported around the time of Merkel's visit to Bush's ranch, quote, Upon taking office in 2005, Merkel became one of Bush's closest European colleagues after her predecessor, Gerhard Schroeder, opposed the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq. Merkel supported the Iraq war. In my head, I started to create a narrative. Oh, wow, Merkel believes in freedom so much, she believed that we, including Germany, had to go to war. She just had that sense of freedom embedded in her, but not so fast. I spoke with Manfred Kunikiewicz. He worked for over 30 years in the German government, He was a senior official in the ministry responsible for international development cooperation. Before retiring, he spent his last 10 years in the Merkel administration. Intentionally or not, he reminded me something larger in Merkel's eyes may have been at stake, and it wasn't freedom as much as friendship. When in doubt, side with the U.S. The U.S. is our most important ally, and and we should not be seen in any way as, uh, as um, let's say, not being allied uh, with the U.S. In fact, in 2003, 
she wrote an op-ed, I think it'd be called an op-ed, published as a guest contributor in the Washington Post. Merkel was not chancellor, but she was taking on the chancellor at the time, which was a shocking move. The headline alone was enough to make her point. Schroeder, the chancellor at the time, doesn't speak for all Germans. She wrote in the piece, It is true that war must never become a normal way of resolving political disputes. But the history of Germany and Europe in the 20th century in particular certainly teaches us this, that while military force cannot be the normal constitution of politics by other means, it must never be ruled out or even merely questioned, as has been done by the German federal government as the ultimate means of dealing with dictators. So why was this a surprising stance? Back at home, the man in charge, Chancellor Schroeder, was giving speeches saying things like, I say that we are ready to show solidarity, but under my leadership, this country will never take part in adventures. Adventures meaning the Iraq War, a position most Germans agreed with, in addition to their low approval ratings of then-President Bush. While going through books and speeches, I hit a turning point. As much as American presidents took to Chancellor Merkel, was Chancellor Merkel equally taken by America? In that speech to Congress, Merkel talks about why America holds a special place in her heart. Now, if there's ever a time to preach, go America, it'd be in front of the United States Congress. But listen, there's a million things she could have talked about. The portion which struck me is towards the beginning. In my wildest dreams, I would not have thought this possible uh, 20 years ago before the fall of the war. For at the time, it was beyond my imagination to ever even travel to the United States, let alone stand here before you one day. The land of unlimited opportunity was for me for a long time impossible to reach. The war, barbed wire, and the order to shoot at those who tried to leave limited my access to the free world. Therefore, I had to rely on films and books, some of which were smuggled by relatives from the West, to gain an impression of the United States. During this speech to Congress, she talked about something she talks about quite a bit, a certain passion. What did I see? What did I read? What was it I was passionate about? I was passionate about the American dream, the possibility for each and everyone to be successful, to actually make it in life through one's own personal effort. And like many other teenagers, I was passionate about genes of a particular brand that you could not get in the GDR, and which my aunt kindly regularly sent to me from the West. I was passionate about the vast American landscapes that seemed to breathe the very spirit of freedom and independence. And immediately in 1990, my husband and I flew to America for the first time, to California. We shall never forget our first glimpse of the Pacific Ocean. It was simply gorgeous. And this, even though for me, America seemed completely out of reach until 1989. Then, on the 9th of November 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and this border, which had divided a nation for decades, keeping people in two different worlds, was now open. And this is why, for me, today is first and foremost a time to say thank you. 
During this speech, having watched it now a few times in 2018 and again now in 2019, it's hard not to see Merkel as something other than a very smart, very humble world leader. And like any world leader, she has a certain confidence. Chancellor Angela Merkel reminds me of a young Meek Mill in a rap battle. Meek is quiet and subdued when another rapper goes at him. Meek stands and takes it. But when it's Meek's turn, you know he will unleash thunder. As biographer Stefan Cornelius said about Merkel, not Meek Mill, she is most dangerous when she is perfectly calm. When she is quiet, there is an outburst waiting just around the corner. Merkel never shouts. She just gets sarcastic, and she then strikes. It's what I think of when I think of a scientist, at least in my third grade Andrew Stanton way of thinking. A scientist is busy at the lab, quietly working late into the night, mixing different chemicals, and then boom, a burst, a flame, a tangible result, or something in between, maybe nothing at all, but hopefully you develop a worthwhile theory. And as I write this, I'm reminded she is a scientist. She has a doctorate in science. Merkel likes cerebral thinkers. She likes intellectuals. It's likely why she took to the professor-turned-president Barack Obama. Wrote her biographer, Merkel values well-educated people who stimulate her mind. President Obama and Chancellor Merkel's friendship has been well-documented, although it did take some time and there were certainly bumps throughout. In 2011, Long before talks of a wall in America sprung up via the current president, President Obama gave Merkel the Presidential Medal of Freedom. During her Medal of Freedom ceremony, Merkel said, The yearning for freedom cannot be contained by walls for long. It was this yearning that brought down the Iron Curtain that divided Germany and Europe, and indeed the world, into two blocks. America stood resolutely on the side of freedom. It is to this resolve that we Germans owe the unity of our country in peace and freedom. Chancellor Merkel added, We see that living in freedom and defending freedom are two sides of one and the same coin. For the precious gift of freedom doesn't come naturally, but has to be fought for, nurtured and defended time and time again. Sometimes this may seem like an endless fight against windmills, but you see, my personal experience is a quite different one. What we dare not dream of today may well become reality tomorrow. The thing about Merkel is she seemed to always be predicting a problem. President Obama hadn't even completed his first year in office when she gave that 2009 address to Congress. It is up to us to convince people that globalization is the great global opportunity for each and every continent, for it forces all of us to work together with others. The alternative to globalization would mean shutting ourselves off against others. But instead of being a viable alternative, this would only lead into isolation and misery. Only a few years later, when interviewed by Stefan Cornelius, he reported back that Merkel was anxious. And this part's incredible. When she told him, America is facing huge demographic change. Soon, the white population will no longer be the majority, and the USA will increasingly lose its European character. At the same time the country is so inward-looking, 
that it no longer understands or even sees the seismic shifts going on in the world. Although there were signs of a global wariness over globalization, especially after the financial crisis, Merkel would continue in many speeches to emphasize the point that world leaders needed to be on the lookout. The fight for freedom in their own quarters could soon be under attack. She said, I'm afraid that open societies in the post-Cold War world are in more danger than we realize. Sometimes my greatest fear is that we've somehow lost the inner strength to stand up for our way of life, to which one can only say, if we have lost that, then we might also lose our prosperity and success. We have no inherent right to democracy or to lasting prosperity. It is very important for us not to deceive ourselves. Freedom, she said, is not a way of nature. We must move away from a bipolar world based on mutual deterrence towards a multipolar world. So why do these warnings, some from over 20 years ago, ring with sincerity? You just have to follow Merkel's line of thinking. As she said, for 35 years, I lived in a dictatorship that followed in the footsteps of the previous one. So I'm always skeptical when people say it can't happen again. After the current American president won the election, Obama and Merkel met for the final time as leaders of their respective countries and had their final press conference. It's also wonderful to be back with my great friend and ally, Chancellor Merkel. Uh, As I reflect back over the last eight years, uh, I could not ask for a steadier or more reliable partner on the world stage, often through some very challenging times. So I want to thank you for your friendship, for your leadership, and your commitment to our alliance. Uh, And I want to thank the German people for the incredible partnership that our countries have been able to establish all these years. President Obama expressed his sentiment about Merkel, and it wasn't all that far off, I realized, from what President George W. Bush said when he saw Merkel during one of their final official meetings. I value your friendship. I value your advice. Uh, Angela Merkel is a constructive force for good. All three, at varying degrees, Obama, Merkel, and Bush, believe that freedom requires institutions. Again, there's important nuances and differences here, but whether it's NATO or a variety of transatlantic alliances, the three believe these relationships are important. They help prevent another world war. They also believe that globalization is important. And so I thought, and perhaps many of you smart listeners of the show knew this already, but I thought this explains the mystery. Got it. The current American president's actions are at odds with the actions of prior presidents and their belief system. The current president stands for so much of what Merkel warned about, a world against globalization and instead one that prefers nationalism and isolationism. I'm not saying which is better, I'm just pointing out the differences in belief. But it was around this time that I hit another turning point. This happened after President H.W. Bush passed away. During his funeral, much of the American media had their cameras pointed at the five presidents in attendance. Only until the next day did I see that one of the guests at his funeral was Angela Merkel. What was she doing there, I thought? She's still in office. She's still the leader of Germany. There were world leaders in attendance, yes, although not many still in office. I realized that, as it turns out, 
Merkel had been in the Oval Office before becoming chancellor. In fact, she was there before George W. Bush was in office and even before President Bill Clinton's tenure. Chancellor Merkel was in the Oval Office at a pivotal point in German history. What really happened is brought to you by Swell Investing. Did you know that every time you open your wallet, you're essentially casting a vote for what you believe in? Let's see. So far, I voted for a kale salad with extra carrots. And later on tonight, I'll be voting for a nice sparkling water. With that said, the same goes with investing. Every dollar you invest, you're casting a vote for the future. That's why Swell Investing and we here at What Really Happened want to ask you, what kind of world do you want to invest in? Swell is an impact investing platform that helps you invest in businesses that are creating a healthier, more sustainable planet. Their portfolios feature companies that are tapping renewable energy sources, finding new ways to recycle, developing breakthroughs in health and medicine, eradicating disease, fighting for diversity and inclusion. And the best part, you don't need to sacrifice returns to make an impact. Stocks of socially responsible companies have beaten the S&P 500 for the past 25 years. Every vote counts. And now you can make your dollars count too. We'll even help you get started. Right now, listeners get a $50 bonus when they sign up at swellinvesting.com slash W-R-H. That's swellinvesting.com slash W-R-H, as in what really happened. Swell, invest in progress. Somebody is shredding a lot of documents. On the night the Berlin Wall fell, while most in East Germany and around the world celebrated, there was worry elsewhere. This takes our story to Dresden, Germany, where a KGB officer was likely very angry. That officer, Vladimir Putin. He was busy that night, referring to secret documents he'd later say, we burned so much that the oven almost exploded. Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel are only two years apart in age, born in 1952 and 1954, respectively. Both have a love for Russian literature. In fact, Merkel only has one photo in her office, and it's a silver-framed portrait of Catherine the Great, a ruler of Russia who, among other things, manipulated different men to expand her authority. In Merkel's early teenage years, when not tumbling down a hill, she competed in a national Russian language Olympiad, a competition for kids who were actually two years older, and she got third place. The prize was a trip to Moscow. She would take home first place only two years later, and her excellence in school garnered attention. It's also worth pointing out that Angela Merkel's ability to speak different languages didn't just come from her genes. Just outside of the town, where that young, curious girl grew up, was one of the last Soviet military bases just outside of the Soviet Union. It was home to the 25th Armored Division, designed in the 1950s as a military base of the 16th Air Army of the Soviet Forces. When military members passed through town, a young Merkel, then still Angela Kasner, would practice her Russian with the troops. How good was her Russian? 100% good. 
it got to the point where East Germany tried to recruit her as a spy. A government file reads, Although Angela tends to see the leading role of the Soviet Union as something of a dictatorship to which all other socialist countries are subordinate, she is enthusiastic about the Russian language and the culture of the Soviet Union. How crazy is that? But make no mistake, the curious teenager was also seemingly entranced with the Western world. She had picked up a Beatles album while in Moscow. At school, she'd go to the bathroom so she could listen to the West German elections. She knew the names of every member of the cabinet. And above all else, she knew not to talk about it. This was embedded in young Angela by her family. Don't forget, anyone could be an informant in East Germany. And Stasi agents knew, just through school records, Angela was a star. And so they tried to have her work for them. And Merkel put on a show. Well, a Merkel show. It was silence. She played overly innocent. She said she couldn't hold secrets and would later say, yes, learning when to keep quiet was a great advantage in the GDR. It was one of our survival strategies. Merkel made the most of the freedom she did have, busy working as a scientist and staying out of government, politics, and certainly any secret police force. Meanwhile, Putin was doing the opposite, serving as a KGB agent. Both essentially living under Soviet control, both with totally opposite approaches. Thus, not surprisingly, their belief in what freedom means is at odds. Despite being known as a tactician and mind game master, I've been surprised during this process to learn how many doubt whether Putin even understands the core concepts of a democracy. One Russian historian, Kimberly Martin, has said that world leaders, quote, continue to find themselves surprised that Putin looks at all policy decisions, including international affairs, in patron-client terms. Looking at democracy in patron-client terms. I found that interesting. Reports are that President George W. Bush couldn't believe it when Putin sincerely asked him why Bush couldn't change the Constitution as his second term was coming to an end. Bush was even more surprised when Putin asked if it was Bush himself who had Dan Rather fired from CBS. Who thinks the president can just order a journalist to get fired? President Obama apparently found himself also surprised when the Russian president expected Obama to take control of the U.S. Congress after they said their main goal was to make him a one-term president. Reports are Putin was further surprised that Obama would overrule his military advisors. Putin didn't realize that the president was also the commander-in-chief of the military. With that said, there isn't another world leader that we know of who speaks to Putin as much as Merkel does. Insiders have said about once a week. Merkel has also stood up to Putin time and time again, and hasn't fallen for his trivial and elementary tactics, like when he used her fear of dogs to try and scare her, or in his outdated, or really, again, elementary ways of attempting to diss Merkel with lines like, better not to argue with women. It's like, in my opinion here, he's stuck in the Cold War. It's time to introduce into our story another man who is a big part of Angela Merkel's life, 
her husband, a.k.a. Mystery Man. At 23 years old, Angela was actually married first to Ulrich Merkel, a physicist. Said biographer Stefan Cornelius, this allowed them to be allocated a shared home and the state would not separate a couple who were looking for work. They divorced after five years, although Angela has kept his last name. Over 15 years later, she married her longtime boyfriend, Joachim Saucer, also a scientist. In German politics, who you are married to plays less of a role than in the States, and if it were up to Joachim, there'd be absolutely no role. He is a quantum chemist. He's a bigwig in the world of computational chemistry. Take a look at his publications in the Journal of the American Chemical Society, and you'll see what I found. It's really hard to understand his work. Computational chemistry, people. He's not messing around. So when it's time to play the role of spouse to the free world, where is Angela Merkel's husband? Nowhere to be found. At various points during her life in public office, what Joachim has said, he would only give interviews if it pertained to his work. He does not want to get in his wife's way and the other way around. He was not present when Merkel won election or re-election, her inauguration, and other key events in her political life. It's been reported, though, that he did watch his wife take the oath of office, but it was on TV. It's hard to not start making him a caricature after you discover his name in German means sour or grumpy. When you watch Saucer at the Texas ranch, for instance, with the bushes, a rare appearance, or at the annual opera festival he attends with his wife, you can see how easy it is for the media to give him the nickname, the Phantom of the Opera. But who a person is married to can tell you a lot about who they are. And this is a man devoted and passionate about his work, just not meant for the public spotlight. If you were to ask him, he'd probably say, hey, listen, I show up when it matters, even if I'm late. Like when he came from a conference to attend the White House Presidential Medal of Freedom Award for his wife, barely making it in time for dinner. But when it counts, he does his job. Yes, it took eight months for him to first publicly appear with his wife after her election, but when Berlin hosted the 50th anniversary of the founding of the EU, it was none other than Joachim Saucer, the quantum chemist, who gave the wives of 26 other world leaders, yep, all wives, a tour of Berlin. During the tour, German citizens and the media couldn't believe it when he smiled at one point. A Washington Post article said the German people found the smile to be, quote, a mini-sensation. And now remember what this means for Merkel, and it's easy to overlook. But as you can imagine, the world leaders around her have almost always been men. As C.J. Craig from the West Wing once said in a conversation with Sam Seaborn, Where'd you get the bathrobe? The gym. Their bathrobes at the gym. In the women's locker room. But not the men's. Yeah. Now that's outrageous. There's a thousand men working here and 50 women. Yeah, and it's the bathrobes that's outrageous. 30 seconds. I spoke more with Dr. Olson, and it starts to add up why you can see that Merkel relates to Catherine the Great. To be at the top of your profession, in this case politics, you have to beat a lot of people. And so she's done a lot of winning, and because she's in a man's world, it's always beating men. You can almost group different stages of this. First, she's beaten political rivals in Germany. She was quite remarkable at the beginning about 
out maneuvering her male rivals within the party. A lot of that was from kind of her her very patient and measured way of doing things that she figured out, you know, I'm going to I'm going to wait at this stage. I'm going to be patient at this stage. Then I will go in for the kill. Then there are the men who've worked underneath her and have wanted power. These uh, various uh, uh, governors of German states called the minister presidents, governors of German states were all male and they, you know, they were vying to to replace Merkel, but she kind of cut them, cut them down one by one. And then there's the men internationally. And her issues with some of these men actually started with former French president Nicolas Sarkozy. And remember, while Dr. Olson talks here, Merkel's humility. Kind of traditional uh, uh, testosterone-driven sexist man, yeah. And she, she didn't like him, but she, you know, found a way to work with him. It's the same way with Trump. She tries to find a way to work with him. She doesn't, uh, you know, she doesn't scream back or, you know, take the bait on some of the things that he says. So she's had to deal with a lot of males, male egos on both domestically and internationally. And she just knows how to, how to hang back and, and you know, kind of to be tough, um, but not to do it with a lot of bravado. Merkel has said her husband is a very good advisor and that their conversations are vital in her life. Both try to live a very private life and also one of humility. In the book, Becoming Madam Chancellor, author Joyce Marie Mushabin writes, while many German politicians are drawn to Majorca or Tuscany, Merkel still visits the weekend house that she acquired before becoming chancellor. Joyce also reported that during her first inauguration, Merkel was proud to serve her very own potato soup. At her home in central Berlin, there is one housekeeper. Her husband does the grocery shopping, although she has been spotted shopping for groceries as well. Luxury does not suit her taste. Added Joyce, she has never been cited wearing Prada or carrying a Gucci handbag. But my question is, where'd this come from? It's hard not to start playing therapist when you read everything or watch everything, as much as I can anyway, on somebody. And ultimately, I do think there's one quote that got to me in terms of why she's not interested in luxury. No fancy apartments, cars, bags, whatever. Merkel said once, This inclination to hoard is deeply ingrained in me because in the past, in times of scarcity, you took what you could get. Now, in March of 2017, she's sitting next to President Donald Trump, meeting for the first time. In the Oval Office and for the media to capture is when the president will often shake hands with other world leaders. And the current president has followed that protocol with world leaders up until this point. The media asks, as they're wrapping up brief comments, that they shake hands. The president just stares forward. So then Merkel says herself. If you couldn't hear, she said, they are saying we should shake hands. Again, the president doesn't flinch. There's some small talk for about a minute, and the press starts asking again. Merkel says again to Trump, who doesn't even look at her, they want a handshake. Trump again avoids this. 
If you ask me, of course he heard. He answered a few other questions that weren't even as loud as the calls for a handshake. It became a news story. A spokesperson for the president said it was much ado about nothing. The president didn't hear it, but I can't really believe that. Watch it on YouTube. It's easy to find. Search Trump, Merkel, handshake, and decide for yourself. But why wouldn't he shake her hand? At first, I thought it was because she represented Europe, and to him, Europe owes America money. The Americans pay way too much compared to EU members. Then I thought, maybe it had to do with her being a woman. And yes, I definitely think that has something to do with it, but to play devil's advocate, he shook hands with British Prime Minister Theresa May, albeit they are far more politically aligned. So again, why not shake her hand? A recent New Yorker article laid out the current president's feelings towards Angela Merkel. It starts with a tweet, of course, from him saying, I told you, at Time Magazine, would never pick me as a person of the year. They picked the person who is ruining Germany. Since September 2015, Angela Merkel's Germany has allowed more refugees into their country than any other in the world. This seemed to bother Trump. He also tweeted, The people in Germany are turning against their leadership as migration is rocking the already tenuous Berlin coalition. Crime in Germany is way up, which is not accurate. He continued, Big mistake made all over Europe in allowing millions of people in who have so strongly and violently changed their culture, exclamation mark, also not true. The New Yorker article reported he, Trump, often brought the chancellor up on the campaign trail in 2016, saying at a rally in March, what Merkel did to Germany, it's a sad, sad shame. The article added, Merkel's immigration policy infuriated Trump and he seized on it to help define his candidacy for the White House. Said one German official, it took Germany the longest of all partners to come to terms with someone like Trump becoming president. We were very emotional because our relationship with America is so emotional. It's more of a son-father relationship and we didn't recognize our father anymore and realized he might beat us. The article written by Susan B. Glasser goes on to say, the president, the German officials concluded, harbored a deep animus towards Germany in general and Merkel in particular. One senior German official told Susan Glasser, there's a single-mindedness to it and almost an obsession, it seems. And this is something we are hearing from colleagues in the administration too, an obsession with Germany. I also wondered, maybe the president is frustrated at Germany's success. After all, while Merkel has been in charge, Germany's economy has expanded by more than one-fifth. It's the largest economy in Europe. She helped push unemployment to the lowest level since the early 1980s. Broadcaster Deutsche Welle said, Angela Merkel allowed Germans to be proud again. Then I wondered, well, listen, who knows why they didn't shake hands? And You could just say it's because her and Obama got along. And the current president has said he thinks Obama has done an historically bad job on many fronts, including Europe. Yeah, I think that has something to do with it also. Some may agree with the current president's approach, others not so much. And either way, I kind of just sat on this information, this story. But a larger idea came to me in the form of what would happen about a year and a half later when a former president died. 
On November 30th, 2018, President George Herbert Walker Bush passed away. Five days later, his state funeral was held at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. In attendance, all of the living presidents, Prince Charles, and, like I said earlier, although cameras seemed to hardly notice her, Chancellor Angela Merkel. And while I read through reactions from different world leaders, I realized, to be honest, I'd forgotten something that I had read a year or so earlier. While not Chancellor, Merkel had indeed met the first President Bush. In fact, she shook hands with President Ronald Reagan. The nuance, oftentimes left out of American history books, is that after the Berlin Wall collapsed, there was a major question. What to do next? Many of Germany's neighbors were not in favor of a unified Germany. French writer Francois Mauriac put it well. I love Germany so much that I'm glad there are two of them. Britain's Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher said two months before the wall fell, we do not want a unified Germany. She also said she'd try to undermine the whole international situation. Said President H.W. Bush, I don't share the concern that some European countries have about a reunified Germany. Now this is the part I'd forgotten about and have now studied. On September 16, 1991, Chancellor Helmut Kohl was in the Oval Office. He was speaking with the President of the United States, George H.W. Bush. They were working on this new, unified Germany. During one press conference with the Chancellor at the time, Helmut Kohl, President Bush was asked, Mr. President, uh, I'd like to know perhaps the core question. Do you trust that uh, Germany will never become an aggressive, resurgent military power? I have stated that the U.S. position is uh, that we welcome unification. And clearly, that would not be the position if we held the fears uh, that that, uh, your question alluded to. The fine and nearly impossible political balance of a unified Germany was agreed upon. Nearly 20 years later, President H.W. Bush looked back, and he talks here about how it happened, German unification and the end of the Soviet Union, and how it required a trusting friendship. When he says we, he's referring again here to Chancellor of the time, Helmut Kohl. Uh, We were in touch Uh, Every time there was contact with Gorbachev, one or the other of us would share uh, his latest thinking so that we would be prepared as a team, Cole and Bush, United States and Germany, uh, to to overcome any uh, objections that Gorbachev might have had. So there was a lot of personal contact. Helmut Kroll is a true friend. And you can put that on a personal basis, a man whose word of honor is good, a man who... uh, uh, is going to have strong points of view, but also will listen to, to others. And then you can put it on the official basis. Germany and the United States are true friends. So why does any of this matter? Well, on that day, September 16th, 1991, while Helmut Kohl and George H.W. Bush were discussing the fall of an empire, there was that curious rising star from East Germany. Angela Merkel. She worked under the Kohl administration. An article from the New York Times, published after the senior Bush's death, said Merkel, quote, watched in the Oval Office as her boss and President George Bush wrestled 
with the sudden collapse of the Soviet Union. Without an influx of emergency aid, Germans feared that refugees could pour across the border, threatening the stability of their newly reunified country. Again, Germans feared that refugees could pour across the border. In 2018, Angela Merkel said it was time for her to step down. And many publications said she wasn't stepping down as much as she was being booted out. And it was because of that same fear once again, immigration. Now, my question remained, was Chancellor Merkel saying all of these great things about President Bush because she meant it? Yeah, it seems like it. But was she saying this also as a backdoor way to teach the current president a lesson? As it turns out, the day of the senior Bush's passing, Angela Merkel was with Donald Trump. And she told him that story. That story about the day she was in the Oval Office with the first President Bush and the Chancellor of Germany at the time. President Trump noted it in the press. Angela and I were just talking about it. He was a wonderful man. And uh, you may want to just explain your your little meeting with him. I found it very interesting. Yes, uh, I was in Chancellor Kohl in the White House visiting um, George Bush, and he is the father or one of the fathers of the German unification, and we will never forget that. He, as in Bush, was the founder, or one of the founders, of German unification. This time, the two did shake hands, and to be clear, they've shaken hands since. In fact, if you want to hear something amazing, Trump, I think, has recently taken to Merkel's beloved hand posture. So maybe he likes that about her. So was Merkel making a political point by singing such praise about H.W. Bush? Maybe. But that doesn't mean it wasn't sincere, And I actually don't think it had much, if anything, to do with the current president, for a simple reason. When I went back to watch that speech she gave to Congress in 2009, about 10 years before the senior Bush's death, Chancellor Merkel made a point of saying, I think George Herbert Walker Bush, for the trust he placed in Germany, and then Chancellor Henry Kohl, offering something of immeasurable value to us Germans already in May 1989. Partnership in leadership. What a generous offer 40 years after the end of the Second World War. It was actually only last Saturday that we met again in Berlin, incidentally together with Mikhail Gorbachev, and to him too we owe a debt of gratitude. Some may suggest I should dig deeper, that there are larger looming questions. What about some of these presidents and their family ties to Germany? Why not talk about internal politics like Merkel's take on austerity in countries like Greece or a variety of other political issues which are interesting and worth discussing? Or some would suggest I should talk about Trump's longtime feelings on Germany, which come from his dad. Don't forget, Fred Trump and Donald Trump have said they are originally from Sweden, when in fact it's Germany. There's a balance for me when writing these podcasts and storytelling in general. It's not so much what you say, but what you choose not to. There are a lot of lanes to take with our story today. You may think I'm all over the place right now, but this story has many moving parts. World leaders, an empire's demise, other countries trying to stay together, democracy on the line, secret agents galore. Just thinking out loud, Putin is like a secondary character in the story. That's how much we have going on. And our main subject here, our main character, if you will, is Merkel, 
who most call a mystery, a female head of state surrounded by male heads of state and her dealings in some capacity with five different presidents over the course of nearly three decades. And that's what I chose to stick with here. Her relationships with these presidents and what happened when Trump chose not to shake her hand. The main difference between Chancellor Merkel and any American president is that she's been trapped. She has had that experience. It's really hard not to see that embedded in her DNA. In every determination she makes, there seems to be a lingering question. Are we helping people who want democracy, who want to live in a free society? Yes, she's thinking of politics, of course, but it is this freedom which seems to have gotten her in the game to put down the test tubes and likely would have won a Nobel Prize in chemistry and get in the political arena. And many believe what will kick her out of that arena is her position on immigration and that President Trump's worldview, similar to those in favor of Brexit or that of the recently elected Brazilian president, was beating out the Merkels of the world and overtaking the view of past presidents. That there was a new world order which dissolves institutions and looks down on globalization. But perhaps there are other factors. I spoke with Dr. Joyce Marie Mushabin, author of Becoming Madam Chancellor, Angela Merkel and the Berlin Republic. It's an excellent book. You can get it on Amazon. Definitely recommend it. She said, I think the more serious problem right now is that people are tired of Merkel tired of having the same leader for now almost 13 years. Dr. Mushabin also added that the frontrunner to replace Merkel is in the same party and they agree on most fronts. Just one piece in Merkel's roadmap for the future. Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. I mean, her biography is pretty cool as well. She's from a very small state and she is Catholic. She has always been, for many years, she's been the core breadwinner. Her husband stayed home to take care of the kids when she decided to enter the political arena. She was on Merkel's side from day one and Ursula von der Leyen. She's a new breed, and there are many, many of these now who have been attracted by Merkel, who could use Merkel as a role model. Manfred Kunikiewicz added some historical perspective. When you... um Look back in history, um, and uh, you, you find that many um, uh, outstanding leaders have found difficulty uh, to uh, to find the best way to access, like uh, uh, Churchill. You next can go to uh, Charles de Gaulle, who was uh, who was very much respected. Um, FDR actually is uh, maybe the only the only person that comes to my mind who um, did not suffer that same fate. Well, he died in office. Yeah, I was uh, going to say, he, uh, uh, yeah. he didn't have much uh, of a but, choice. But subsequent presidents, in a way, were also spared because uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, then uh, introduced the uh, two-term uh, mm. limit on, on, on presidents. So that is uh, that, uh, that issue of exit uh, is... Uh, is, is not really that, that relevant there. I think those observations are compelling, but many articles point out that this stance is what grew the populist far-right movement known as the AFD Party, the Alternative for Germany, 
which now has more seats in the German government than in any time since unification. If you watch Matt Heinemann's film City of Ghosts, you see disturbing protests throughout Germany with many citizens marching with Nazi flags. And if there is one thing the current president sees that Merkel does not, is both sides to these marches. It's what separates him from other presidents. So why does this anecdote matter? What does it matter if he didn't shake her hand? I mean, there are so many good stories out there. Why am I even doing this? But in this case, why he didn't shake Chancellor Merkel's hand got me to places I wouldn't have thought. I bet if you poll Americans as to why he didn't shake her hand, it goes straight down party lines. Door number one, Trump's an idiot, and who knows why. Door number two, Trump was being tough. But either door you choose, you'll end up in the same place. This, believe it or not, is all about policy. I've learned that every president has had a certain bond with Angela Merkel. All for different reasons, but there has been one underlying theme. That free countries around the world must work together to ensure strong economies, peace, and freedom for all. The reason what happened matters is because the non-handshake was a signal to the world. Even small actions matter. If I could interview Merkel for a documentary, I could almost picture my interview setup with the camera. I'd ask her to look into the lens. We might as well get as intimate as possible, seeing as she's depicted as such a mystery. And the chancellor, born in East Berlin, would look right at our camera and say, I told you. I almost word for word said, if we don't fight for freedom during these times when we are free, something bad will happen. I told you we had to be on our toes. We had to convince, convince the world that globalization is good. Institutions are good. Freedom isn't just good, but required. And while free, we must not take it for granted. And with an aging white population, people could get mad. Merkel then looks at us one final time and says, the last thing anyone ever should do is start talking about things like the Berlin Wall. I had to live through that. We can't do it again. Instead, that is exactly what really happened. Next time on What Really Happened? There have been films and TV shows about the heroic SEAL Team 6 who killed Osama bin Laden and changed history. And then there was the famous photo of President Obama and his team in the Situation Room during the raid, looking on and waiting until they got the news. Bin Laden was killed. The main players have all spoken about what it was like during those tense moments. Barack Obama on 60 Minutes, Hillary Clinton in her book, Joe Biden in his speeches. But what did the other officials in that photo experience? What do they remember? Well, I talked to them so that we can all better understand the full picture of what really happened. 